looking at Leviticus chapter 20 this evening, I want to go ahead and, and pray. So let's pray as we start. Father, thank you for our time together. What a joy life is. And I thank you, God, as you have given me life, not only uh, through birth and, and, and those things, but also through the cross in Jesus, Father. So we thank you for that. But not only have you given me life, you've given me uh, friends and family. And tonight I'm thankful to be with family as I celebrate the fact that you have uh, given me that precious life. So, God, may we rejoice in that together. May we give thanks for all of your good gifts, and may we look to your word, which is good for us. May we look for your, to your word tonight and uh, grow in it and learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, going to put a couple things together for us. If you, if you look back, kind of Leviticus chapter 16 was a pivotal point. Everything before Leviticus 16 was working up to Leviticus 16. You had the sacrifices that they were to offer regularly because of their sins, because of their thanksgiving. You had the sacrifice they were to give. You had how the priests were to handle those sacrifices. You had how the, the, they were to come in and worship in this way. You were, to, you were seeing what it took because, remember, God has saved his people from bondage in Egypt to live and dwell with his people. So he's telling them, here's what it takes for a holy God to dwell with his people, right? And so here's what's required of you. In Leviticus, we are still at Sinai. They got to Sinai in Exodus 20. The Lord comes down and gives them the Ten Commandments. And then after that, the, the people say, that's enough. You go on our behalf, Moses. And Moses goes into the cloud on the mountain. And the Lord speaks to Moses. And through Moses, he's giving his law. He's giving his law to his people. The Lord has saved his people so that he can dwell and be with his people. And that's going to take a new government. He's starting this new people now. As he moves into Canaan land, which is the promised land, here's how it's going to work. Here's how it's going to operate. And so if you're going to have a society, if you're going to have a, a people, if you're going to be a nation, then you have to have laws, you have to have rules, you have to have understandings of how things work. You had to be in place. And so God is the one who is leading his people. This is a theocracy. God is in charge. He's leading his people. And he's telling his people, here's how you live in light of the fact that I have already redeemed you and saved you. Here's how you live. And he calls his people to holiness. And so ultimately you say, up until 16, you see how it works. And in 16, you see that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one time a year. This is the sacrifice that's given on behalf of the people. Then after that, he continues now in what it means to live in holiness. So you saw it there in 17. Really, to be honest, chapter 18 and chapter 20 are almost parallel passages with 19 squeezed in the middle. And 19, as we saw last week, has that verse, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so 19 and 20 kind of parallel each other. There'll be things in Leviticus especially. So there's verses in here, there's, there's places in here that, that I may pass over as we do kind of this overview. This is not us diving into every little verse trying to, to, to figure that all out. We're getting an understanding of how to understand what's going on, where it applies, what are the principles, and those kind of things. So there'll be some of those places where you want to go, well, what about this verse? Well, good, you figured that out yourself. What I'm trying to do is give you those principles and guidelines for how you figure those out, right? And how we work through the text. Leviticus is a book that has a theme. God's people are distinct and should live holy lives. That's the main theme. And the secondary or the, the other side of that coin, if you will, God's people are distinct, set apart for God. Therefore, they should live holy lives. With the second part being God's people are sinful and they must offer sacrifices. And so Leviticus is leading us up to that way. And what's happening here with this law that is given to Moses, this becomes a comprehensive set of guidelines to ensure 
that the Israelites' behavior in the promised land as God's people reflected their status as God's people. Does that make sense? If you're going to be God's people, then you need to reflect the fact that you are God's people. Uh, you know, you remember how your parents used to put it, you know, don't forget whose you are and who you, who you represent, right, as you, as you go out. Therefore, you're a representative of, of, of the name you bear. So it is with, with God's people. They have been called out. They are distinct, set apart for his purposes. They represent him now in the world. And so Leviticus and these laws are how Israel is to behave, reflecting their status as God's people. This means moral behavior. This means godly, faithful example to other nations. This means they acknowledge God's holiness and they acknowledge their sinfulness. In, in essence, one theologian has said that all of Scripture, all of theology comes down to two points. Know God and know yourself. Know God and know yourself, right? I mean, it ultimately, that's what the Scriptures are coming to. Here's who God is, and here's who you are in light of that, right? Here's who you are in light of who God is. That means moral behavior, godly example, and God's holiness and our sinfulness. Now, again, these laws are given not as a way for the people to earn God's salvation. They're given to the people after God has already saved them, right? The salvation in this passage is representative of the fact that he goes into Egypt and he delivers his people out of the bondage of slavery of Egypt. And so when he gets to Sinai, he says, you know, you are my people who I have redeemed out of Egypt. Now you shall have no other gods before me, right? And so our life now reflects the fact that we have been saved. So these laws become a reflection of the change, the salvation that God has provided for us. They're not doing these to earn his favor. They're doing these because he has saved them already. Does that make sense? It's a very important distinction when it comes to why we are obedient to God. We don't, we don't seek after obedience to earn God's favor. We seek after obedience because we have received God's favor, because of who we are now. And when we seek after obedience because we've received God's favor, then it's a testimony that we truly have received God's favor. It becomes the, the thing that sets us apart and makes us distinct. So as the people are moving through, God gives them his word and he tells them. Now, some of these things seem foreign to us. Obviously, they should. You're dealing with a different kind of context here, a different history. God is pulling his people out of a pagan culture in Egypt. Multiple gods, they were worshiping the rivers, they're worshiping the crops, they're worshiping the cattle, they're worshiping the sun, they're worshiping... Pharaoh himself, he considered himself a god. They're pulling them out of a pagan culture. And by pulling them out of that for 400 years having dwelled there, they have that pagan godless culture still kind of running there in their mind of what he's pulling them out of. And not only that, he's taking them into a place, Canaan, that's going to be full of godless people, right? It's going to be full of other nations that are not following after God. So his people are distinct and different and they will look different from the other nations. Here's what's expected from you. Don't turn back to those things again. And so he says, therefore, the standard, as we saw last week, are not the nations that you see around you. The standard is God himself, be holy, for I am holy, the Lord said. You don't compare yourself to those people. You compare yourself to me. And what you are to look like, the Lord is saying, is me. And so here is who I am. That means that all of these laws, all of this that's given, is a reflection of the holiness of God. Here's, here's who we are. Here's who we, God says, here's who I am. So you keep these out of reflection, reflecting upon me. 
And so you are distinct. You keep these. And so when you get to chapter 20, you kind of have some things going on. That's why he deals with stuff that's so seemingly different. Like, why does he bring this up? Because he's coming out of these, these pagan cultures who were doing these very things. And so in chapter 20, he says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among the people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Molech was a god of the Canaanites. And one of the requirements for Molech was that you would sacrifice a child to them. And so this sacrificing of a child, the Lord is saying anyone who would do such a thing to receive blessing shall be put to death. We'll talk about that in a minute. You'll be cast out from me. You cannot worship another god, Molech being one, especially one as wicked as Molech. Anyone, really. And, and, and you see all throughout Scripture, by the way, that one of the expectations of a Christian society, a Christian people, is that you care for those who are most vulnerable amongst you. You care for them. So what is pure religion? Remember? What is pure religion in James chapter 1? Who do you care for in pure religion? The orphans and the widows. Those who need the most help among you, those where you care for them, you watch over them. And so any nation or people that could take a child and willingly sacrifice that child to some God or some other thing is of the abomination to the Lord himself. No one can do such a thing. No one can offer that. So if you do that, you're going to be in trouble. By the way, if you read 2 Kings, that's what ex exactly is what some of the Israelites started doing toward the end whenever God sent Babylon in to conquer them in punishment. They were sacrificing some of their children to the god Molech. And so he does exactly what he says would happen if you are to do it. You are to take care of those who are most vulnerable in your midst. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes, y'all, I just read three lines without my glasses. 49 is working better. Let me see if I can keep going. When he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Anyone who goes after another god especially one so wicked as Molech, will be dealt with. Either you deal with it or I will, the Lord says. You will not get away with going after the most innocent among you. You will not get away with it. Here, actually, he uses that language uh, in the text, and just because of the language itself, I'm going to put my glasses on, make sure I got it right. He uses the language of whoring after Molech. From the very beginning of pulling the people out of, of Egypt, the Lord speaks to them as his bride, right? You are my first love. So anytime God's people go after another God or put another God in the place of the one true and living God, it is committing spiritual adultery. The spiritual adultery. And so when you're going after these things, he says you are, uses the language graphically, I think, to depict you're going, you're whoring after another another God. You're going after it. By the way, James uses the same language. We'll get to this in a minute. Leviticus 20 takes a beating in the world. You know, Leviticus 20 is full of what some people consider just some silly little laws that are outdated and carry too much punishment with them. So one of the places that people try to, try to attack Scripture and Christianity at is right here in the heart of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20. The death penalty, for example, is given to so many different things that we, we wouldn't necessarily give the death penalty for, or, or it speaks of things that we're sophisticated and past that aren't so wicked in the now. And so Leviticus 20 is one of those places where 
oh, you're telling me I can't do such and such? It's one of the places where people would argue against the scriptures themselves to say, look how the scriptures put it. You want me to do that? You want me to stone somebody because they have sexual relations with a woman during her time of the month? That's exactly what it says. You want me to stone them and be cast out? That seems so silly. And so Leviticus 20 takes a beating for these things. But let's say a place it shouldn't take a beating is the fact that we must care for those who are most vulnerable in our midst. And that's why I believe as Christians we have been fighting for some time the, the issue of abortion itself in our own society with 550 million babies aborted legally. That's like sacrificing them to Molech, right? And so ultimately we see that that's one of the things, not because we're, we're trying to establish some state religion in some sense, but that we as a people deep down in our bones, who are the, we as a people know that we must fight who, for who are most vulnerable in our midst. Why is that? Because we were vulnerable to death and judgment, but God fought for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we fight. Molech is not one of those places. Here he says, if a person, and keeps going, turns to mediums and necromancers, that's, that's talking to spirits, necromancers, necro meaning death, somebody's talking to the dead, whoring after them, I'll set my face against that person and will cut him off from his people. Cut him off from the people has a very real sense. Where are the people of God at? Y'all know? They're in the wilderness now. So to be cut off from the people would be a death sentence. You're wandering around in the desert. But not only that, it also carries with it, I believe, uh, eschatological, a future thing. So, so whenever, whenever I, in 1998, I asked Allison to marry me when she was right at 18. She's actually a little bit older. I asked her to marry me, and you know how, back, I mean, things have changed now. If you see... If you see people uh, asking for marriage now, they like have 17 people hiding in bushes, taking videos. They got blankets laid out and candles and they got everything planned out. I just looked at Allison and said, hey, Allison, do you want to be buried with my people? <laughs> and she said, yes, good. You know, we got it settled. You know, that's where we're going to end up. So it is with those who were cut off. The idea here of being cut off is to be removed from the inheritance. For all eternity, you don't receive the glories of heaven. And so this is speaking in the future of eternity when he says, you don't have a part of my inheritance or my people. The land is not yours, right? For us as believers, heaven being the fulfillment of what is truly Canaan is not yours when you're cut off from that land. So anybody that could sacrifice to Molech, anybody that thinks that they can find some things out from the necromancers, anybody that thinks they need a medium to determine what life is all about and what's going, and you think you can talk to the dead, anybody that pursues after that, you have no part of my inheritance or my people. You have no part of it. And so it says there in verse, verse 9, for anyone who curses his father, I've got two of my kids in here, anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon them. Man, there's a lot there, right? Why is that? Ultimately, again, the Lord is seeking to bring a people out of paganism and into a new reality and a new society. And the basis for that reality is society would be a family unit that is working together, a father and a mother who is leading well. The judgments on father and mother are just as wicked, just as harsh for those who would not lead their children well. So it is, he says, you must lead well. Notice in the middle there in verse uh, 8, it ends with, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Remember that and mark that. We'll come back to that in a little bit. He keeps going. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. The uncovering the nakedness euphemism here, y'all know what a euphemism is, a figure of speech. I don't know if y'all remember, but there's a passage in, in, in Genesis chapter 9 
where Noah, after coming off of the boat and everything's cool, uh, it says Noah had a little too much and passed out and his son went in and uncovered his nakedness. Y'all remember that? So let me give y'all, let me remind y'all at this point of some principle, of our principles of hermeneutics. Y'all remember hermeneutics is studying the scriptures. How do we know what the scriptures teach? And I have three principles that I, that I try to remind quite often. And I hadn't done that in a while, so let me remind. First, we go with the plain reading of the text. Oftentimes, people try to read into things way more than they should. What does the Bible say? Amen? I mean, just tell me what the Bible says. And so there, sometimes you can see a plain meaning in the text, and people will try to go around that 17 different directions, ultimately trying to excuse some sort of sin or some sort of thing they want to get away with. So they move around it every which way we can. But we believe in the plain reading of the text. We also believe that some texts aren't very plain, like Noah's son uncovered his nakedness. And there are many, many other uh, commentators and other things that will give you a list of three or four things that could possibly mean. But our second principle, remember, if we go with the plain reading of the text, the second principle is Scripture interprets Scripture. And remember what I told you all about my professor. I thought I had a great question one time, and I went in and said, hey, I've got a great question for you. And I asked this real strong Bible question, and his answer to me, uh, stick with me forever. Uh, Josh, you need to read your Bible more. I thought I'd been reading it a lot. Keep reading, son. And what I found is as you keep reading, oftentimes, quite often, those passages that are clear help interpret the passages that are unclear. And so how about this passage? For example, our number two principle, Scripture interprets Scripture. It's not quite clear what, what uncovering the nakedness means in Genesis 9. But right here in Leviticus 20, in fact, it does it in Leviticus 18 as well, it tells us exactly what it means. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. So what happens, the great wicked sin of, of uh, Canaan in, or Ham in, in Genesis 9 that goes down to the Canaanites, with Noah is that when Noah passed out, his son went in and uncovered his father's nakedness. He laid with his mother. You see what I'm saying? That's wicked. And so ultimately you see why curses happen. That's where Canaan comes from. The Canaanites are descendants from Canaan, and that's who they're going in to, to, to take the land from. You see how it works. This is teaching us exactly what it means when it says that. Not pleasant, but that's what the scriptures mean. Again, being not pleasant should help us here. The scriptures are not hiding anything, right? They're very clear, they're very plain, and they talk about all kind of stuff. Some stuff we just wish that on a Wednesday night, what do we have for supper tonight? Chicken. After chicken, we didn't have to talk about it. But we are. And here he says it. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have, they have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, and there may be no depravity among you. Throughout Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, it is countless instances or speaking to issues of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And why is this? I mean, you can go down this list. This is highly important when you start a society, especially where Israel's coming from. They're coming out of Egypt when it was okay for men to take any woman they wanted at any time, right? It was okay for them to take them any time they wanted to. It was okay for them to overpower them. Women were used for their own sake and pleasure, not for family and family structure in life. So the Lord is saying, actually, listen, I'm the one who created sexuality. I'm the one who made it. And I'm the one who gets to define it. So if you're going to live with me, what you have known with human sexuality is perversion and wickedness. What I'm going to show you is how it should be. 
And it starts with the father and mother and their children. The father and mother give themselves to each other in a committed relationship. The children honor the father and mother. This is how the family structure works. This is how our society will be faithful and good. This is for the best, right? And I think in some ways, and don't quote me on this, or I mean it's recorded or whatever, so I guess it lives forever. I think in some ways, the breakdown of the family in our own society is the systemic problem for so many other issues that we have. The breakdown of a father and a mother who love each other and are faithful and who have children who they raise up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with what is good and what is right is the breakdown that our society is experiencing now. Because when that breaks down, then all sexual relationships become open again and become free. Then everything else becomes a, a possibility, and it moves right on down the list. I'm not one that likes to simply argue the slippery slope problem, right? If you let this happen, then it's going to lead to this. But History itself over the last 50 years have testified that when you break down these things, it just keeps sliding into an abyss that you can't catch up with. And so ultimately what the Lord is saying is, here is how a good and faithful God-honoring society looks like. Here's what's expected. And so for us, we'll get to this in a minute, uh, and I keep saying that because I'm just hoping we just run out of time. But with, for us, for us what it means is that we... Are, if I put it like this, we are people who have been saved and redeemed by God out of slavery and bondage to sin, right? So our Christian life is a reflection. What you see with Israel happening here is a picture, right, of what happens in our own life. They were in slavery and bondage to Egypt. We're in slavery and bondage to sin. They had to have a leader come up and lead them out. Moses came up, led them out, and taught them what the law was, taught them what God expected from them. We had to have a leader, one who's greater than Moses. Jesus, the new and greater Moses, comes, leads us out of slavery to bondage and sin, and he teaches us and shows us what is expected from us now as we are strangers and sojourners, as Peter says, wandering through the wilderness, and we have not arrived. I don't know if y'all know this. America is not our promised land, although if it was, South Carolina would be the heart of it. But we have not arrived at our promised land yet. That's heaven waiting for us. And so we are strangers and pilgrims wandering through this world to get to there. And we live around cultures and people who do not honor God and do not follow God. That doesn't change how we live. Our standard's God, not them. And we set our lives up in ways that honor God and bring him glory in the name. That's who we are. We're distinct as well. And so here he's saying all these things to say, this is what we do. I'm, you know, it's, it's interesting to me to you get a passage like 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. So you get passage about homosexuality, and it's amazing to me that that could be controversial, right? People are trying to explain away these texts so much so as to allow these things to be okay within our own. And I get it. It's an emotional thing. Probably all of us today know somebody in our life who would identify themselves as a homosexual, maybe even in that relationship. So now what happens with us is it's not some distant thing we don't have to deal with. Now, you know, it's one thing, as the old saying goes, the greatest movie that's ever been made was the movie Hoosiers. And so in Hoosiers, you know what the coach says. He says, you know, you can get, you can get naked. You know, I, this past Sunday I naked was in the text and I said naked a couple times and that was wrong because um, naked and naked are different and y'all need to know the difference and speak to Pastor Stephen he'll tell you <laughs> you can get naked and howl at the moon run around and howl at the moon if you want to I ain't going to do nothing about it but if you do it in my backyard now I got to deal with it you know what I'm saying and so ultimately it's easy for us to keep things separate when it's not dealing with us. 
But when it comes to us, and now we have to deal with these things, and we have to speak to some, and some of them may even be our children, our family members, our friends, when we have to do it, what we have to recognize is it's not as easy as we want, but it is pretty simple. There's a difference between easy and simple. Simple is a, like a machine. You know what I'm saying? It's just this is a simple machine. It's clear. You know, it's not hard to figure out, not hard to do. But that doesn't make it easy, you know? I mean, uh, look at sports, for example. It's easy. Put a basketball in a basket. Simple. But that doesn't make it easy. That's why very few people play in the in Major League Baseball. Simple. Ball's coming at you, swing a bat and hit it. Simple, right? Y'all know that you could take the smallest field in Major League Baseball, which holds like 30,000 people, and every player that's ever played Major League Baseball in the history of Major League Baseball would not fill up two-thirds of it. Because that's how few people get to do that. It's a simple thing, but it's not easy. That's the way Christianity is. It's simple. That doesn't make it easy. But what it does do is it determines for us how we are, what standards are we going to hold on to. Because the plain reading of the text from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 in the creation of Adam and Eve, all the way through the scriptures, the plain reading of the text is that God created man and woman so as to be together in a relationship to reproduce children, to multiply and fill the earth, right? And the fact that people attack that simple thing speaks to the, the nature of the world we're in. The nature of the world we're in. Now, I don't have a, a, a lot of time. I will say this. The Lord created us. All of these laws go back to creation. They're grounded in creation. So if the Lord made everything, if he made all of this, then he gets to define it, right? If you invent the game, you get to make the rules. So if we believe God spoke everything into existence by the word of his own mouth, I believe that. If we believe that, then you need to know that God has every right to define how this world is to live. God has every right to make the rules and expectations, and we have no speaking into that. We just simply have to live in light of it. And some of us may live with an understanding that he has saved us and redeemed us, so we want to follow him and keep his laws and keep his rules, right, because he has done this. But there are many who are in rebellion to this, many who are in rebellion, and our world reflects such things. I mean, good grief. In the same passage, verse 15, if a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. Ultimately, we can see how that slope keeps going. And we can't call what is evil good. No matter how emotional it may get, we have to be faithful and good. And all of those things carry with it so much more. But I want to speak to the fact that over and over again here, you see uh, they shall be put to death. Um, they shall be put to death. When you read this verse, it kind of puts us in a, a quandary sometimes if we, don't, if we don't pay attention and understand how the text works together. Because you, you say on the one side, oh, that's, that law is so old, we don't have to keep it anymore. So we don't have to follow. You, some people are trying to argue that. That's speaking about something else. Or you can say on the other side, well, if somebody does it, we got to put them to death. Well, that don't make us feel comfortable either, right? So, so now how do we deal with these things? And you see that capital punishment idea all throughout. First of all, I'll say, I can't find, and y'all can look it up and y'all can disagree. We can talk about it later. Write me a note. Uh, I got a box that I put it in. It's a little round circular thing. I can't find, it's my birthday. I can say what I want to. You know what I'm saying? I can say what I want to. I can't find anywhere in scripture that we as God's people should be against or opposed the idea of capital punishment. I can't find it. It's there in Genesis 9. It's there here in Leviticus. It's there in the New Testament before you see it. Romans chapter 1 speaks of the same thing. Now, I will say there are a million extenuating circumstances that we must consider in doing it. 
First of all, in Leviticus, this is a theocracy. God is making the rules, right? And so God is ruling, and he's the determining judge over all things. Second of all, when you get to Deuteronomy, he tells them that you can't bring any charges against anybody unless you have two to three eyewitnesses to each and every event, right? So you have to have two to three eyewitnesses. There's a a way that this works that we see in society. So, So we recognize that. And we want to make sure that whatever system is in place in our own country, in our own place, is the whenever we do follow through with capital punishment because of some crime that was intentional, on purpose, that happens, we need to make sure in every possible way we can, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that person is guilty and the one who committed that crime. Does that make sense? And if there's a shadow of a doubt that it is, I don't think that we should follow through. That's not the purpose of it. That's not the point of it. So that's an aside. What I do want to say here is that capital punishment, as Romans 1, 32, capital punishment does not come from the church. We do not carry it out. Does that make sense to everybody? It's a government state thing. So Romans 13, the Lord puts these things in place. It must come from them. And in the same sense, you see... uh, all of that, that, that these trials must happen, the cases may work, all of those things. But here's what I want to get to. Christians are not obligated, excuse me, Christians are obligated to follow the laws of God's word. They're not obligated to follow the law's sanctions. Does that make sense? In other words, the ethical principles are in place. We follow those, but not the sanctions. And let me give you an example of a couple of these. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians, uh, in Corinth, Paul is dealing with, we, we just, we, Paul's in Corinth and Acts. He's dealing with all kind of mess. You know, there's all kind of trouble within the church. Uh, again, I jokingly say, and I got friends. I, I got a friend who pastors Corinth Baptist Church, and anybody that willingly names their church after this one has got all kind of like, what in the world are you thinking? Because they got all kind of problems. So here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, if I can get there, Paul is dealing with an issue within the church, sexual immorality. It's actually reported that there is sexual morality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. Now he's going right back to Leviticus chapter 20, right? And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who who has done this be removed from you. For though he absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul says, there's somebody among you who's sleeping with his father's wife. Let them be what? Removed. Do y'all notice a little difference there from Leviticus 20 to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Leviticus 20 says to do what with them? Put them to death. First Corinthians 5 says to do what? Remove them. Remove them. Paul is taking the very same principle. It's an abomination, but he's applying a different sanction. Does that make sense? He's taking the very same principle, but he's applying a different sanction in it. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Why is it, why is it here, this, by the way, this word for homosexual is the same word used in Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 20, it says put them to death, but Paul says here that you were formerly this, but what happened to you? You were washed. 
You were cleansed. What has changed from the Old Testament to the New? As the Lord is establishing his people in Leviticus 20, he says, here's how you live. And if we're going to walk through the wilderness and establish a new place, then we cannot deal with anybody that steps outside of what are the requirements of us. We've got to put them to death, right? We've got to do it. But now on the other side of Christ, something different has happened. Now, he who knew no sin became sin. Now, our one who is greater than Moses, right? Our one who's greater than Moses has come, and he has led us out who were once defilers and defamers and sexually immoral. He has led us out, and he has washed us and cleansed us by his own blood. The reason why the sanctions change is because now we have some hope that those who are wicked in their sin can be made righteous in Christ. Now there's hope, right? Not that they're going to defile the greater because Jesus has sanctified us. And the hope comes now that those who were in their sin can be saved. So the message here is not kill them all. The message is believe. Pray for them. Call them to repentance. Let them know that Christ still loved. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can have everlasting life, right? The message here for Paul that's changed is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he who knew no sin became sin. He who knew no sin became one who bore the weight and wrath of all that Leviticus is 20, 20 is talking about. And so what changes not is not the, the uh, ethical principles. Those still remain. The Lord's law is not changed, for God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We keep his statutes. We are seeking to be holy, for he is holy. We seek to be sexually moral, not sexually immoral. We seek to honor God in every way, above the laws of the land and everything else. We've got a standard that we have to bear, and that is the Lord's standard that he has set for us. We keep all of those things because we, as God's people, have been redeemed and saved. We keep all of them because of who he is and reflect his glory and his holiness. But at the same time, those who are still in rebellion, the sanctions are different. The ethical principles are there, but the sanctions become different. But in some sense, think about this, Revelation chapter 21. It does not mean that the sexually immoral are getting away with it. But in Revelation 21, verse 8, when the new heavens and new earth appear, but as for the cowardly, man, I like, I actually, I actually like that. As for the cowardly, those who follow after the Lord are brave, Right? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, it's not as if the punishment is different. Now it's actually greater. Those who will remain in rebellion. God gives hope through his son. And his son, through the blood he shed, can wash and make anybody whiter than snow. Paul even says it when he says, I used to be that. I used to be that. I used to be that. But now, now I've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now I've been washed and made whiter than snow. I used to be all of those things. Now because of Christ, I've been cleansed. But anybody who rejects Christ and rejects the goodness and faithfulness and kindness of God and still lives in rebellion, their punishment is not coming from man on this earth, but it is a divine punishment that is for all eternity. It is for all eternity. So we don't think they're getting away with it nowadays. 
We recognize that the Lord will finally deal with those. Repent and believe, or he will finally deal with your sin. Finally deal with your sin. The Old Testament human sanctions no longer apply under the New Covenant. The New Testament, the New Testament, therefore, gives even more severe divine sanctions, not human sanctions, but divine sanctions. But the New Testament says that we can be changed. And we who are in our sin can be made whole again. And those who are in rebellion can be welcomed into the family. And those who do not keep God's law can be washed free from their sins. And those who are under the punishment of death, they can be set free to life. That, my friends, is the gospel itself. And before we point fingers to all the other sinners out there, remember, no matter what their sin may be, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. The penalty that hangs over the head of sinners in Leviticus 20 hangs over every one of our heads as sinners. But the gift of God through his son, Jesus Christ, is everlasting life. Not death, but life. And so the reason we don't give those same sanctions is because there's a hope that redemption can take place. And those sanctions are in God's hands. Not ours. Not ours. That's why the most, let me help you put this as I close out, the most misquoted passage in all of Scripture, I think, especially in our day and age, is do not judge, right? You can't judge me. Y'all know right after he says, do not judge, it says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Y'all know that? So I, I don't know how, how else you make judgments. You got to figure out who's a pig or not. You know what I mean? When he says, do not judge, do not judge, he says two things. If you judge, no, you're going to be judged by the same. And two, that judgment he's speaking about is an eternal judgment. It is perfectly within our right to judge whether somebody is one that we should spend our time with, one that we should devote ourselves, one that we should let our kids listen to, whether that movie is right or that music is right. We make judgments all the time over what's right and good that we put in. We can perfectly make those judgments. What we cannot do is judge someone to hell. That's God's work. What we do is we offer them hope with life. That's what he's called us to do. And I don't care where you are. I'm the kind of Christian that believes that nobody, no matter what they've done, is too far gone from the grace of our God who can save them. If we believe there's people out there that's too far gone for us to deal with or work with, then the judgment comes on us. Because thank God, nobody considered us too far gone. And if Christ can save me, as Paul would say, he can save anybody. My life is one that has been a blessing. My father's a pastor. I tell the joke that everybody tells now. I think I first came up with the joke that when I was growing up, I had a drug problem. My parents drugged me back and forth to church. I said that first. 1997, I remember saying that. So I was in church my whole life. That does not make me any less of a sinner than those who have not been. And that does not make Christ's salvation in my life any less than the one he redeemed from the pit of this world. Because every one of us who has been saved and washed by the blood of Christ is a testimony and miracle to the power of God to work in our lives. So when we read these passages, the moral nature of them is still there. God is clear of what the expectations are. But the sanctions now have changed because of Christ. And we offer him for salvation. 
Notice what it says. I am the Lord your God. End of verse 24. Who has separated you from the people. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people, that you should be mine. Here's the good thing. As it says in verse 8, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Our holiness, even our holiness, does not come from ourselves. It's the Lord's work in our life. He saves us and he makes us holy. And he sanctifies us. What's left for us to do is simply be faithful. Simply be faithful to his word. Simply be faithful. Good. That's a heavy note to end on your birthday. Look, Ryan Thompson's leaving. He's mad at me. And see you, Ryan. I'm thankful for each and every one of you. Our society and our culture, our world today is going, it feels like 7 million miles per hour, right? It's like the moment we even try to formulate an understanding of one thing, the next thing pops up. And the moment we try to figure out how to handle that, the next thing comes. And then we're being bombarded for what we have to accept and what we have to do and and where we have to go. What I am telling you is I believe in the end, in the end, this world finally will be dealt with. And only those left standing are the ones who were standing upon Christ Jesus and his word. And so I choose my lot because Christ has chosen me and called me to himself to stand with him in his word, even if it means we are socially outcast, even if it means I'm standing against everybody else. Recognize what the Lord says. If, as Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? And his word, I believe, is clear. We got to do circles. We got to perform gymnastics. We got to do all kinds of stuff to get around how clear his word is. His word is spoken. And so we stand upon his word. Let's pray together. Father, help us to do just that. You are faithful and kind. And may we be a people who love as you have loved. Not standing in judgment as to think those people are going to hell, but standing as people who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, knowing what you have done in my life, knowing you can do it in theirs. So we proclaim Christ in love and faithfulness because, God, you can change anyone through your blood. Do your work that only you can do. Help us to be faithful to do what you have called us to do. All for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much.